The Speaking of Cults podcast is presented solely for general informational, educational, and entertainment purposes. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from it is at the user's own risk. The views, information, or opinions expressed by the host and guests are solely those of the individuals involved and do not constitute medical or other professional advice. Hey, everybody. Welcome to my show. And we are going to talk some today about cults, but we're going to talk about some physiological, neurological, behavioral stuff. And we're going to talk some big words, and we're going to get into a few complicated topics or words and concepts here. But actually, this is I'm going to try to keep this as simple as I possibly can, because this is absolutely fascinating stuff. What we're talking about here is an updated podcast, actually, of one that I did years ago. And as you can see, I am joined by Dr. Yuval Leor. Now, Dr. Yuval Leor is a doctor in? Uh, My PhD is in culture studies, but I did write my PhD about the evolution of things that are related to cultic psychology, like sudden conversions, awe experiences, and things like that. Awesome. Awesome. And since then, you've been writing a book, which is actually going to be published this year, on the subject of fervor. Yeah, or the title is fervor. The the subtitle is What Cults Teach Us About Religion and How to Navigate Awe. Uh, That's the working title. Might change. But uh, yeah, the the current title is fervor, but it's, it's about a bunch of this stuff. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Now, you and I have been in touch for years now. Yes. Um, and I think we first met at the Going Clear conference back in Toronto. You were there, right? Yes. You know, I, I was there, but I think we might have talked before that even. Maybe so. Yeah. Maybe so. And, um, and of course, you and I did. I have done a couple podcasts. And the first one we did, we presented... <laughs> What your original idea? Now I'm not I'm not claiming no amount of credit for this. This is a hundred percent Yuval's theory, and I think it's a brilliant one about L. Ron Hubbard. And now we look at the more we look at this, the more we see perhaps other cult leaders as well could have been suffering from or dealing with a physical condition called temporal lobe. Epilepsy. Now, temporal lobe means the the lobes on the temples, the side of your brain, right? Or it's behind the ear. Yeah. Okay. Back behind here. No, no, it's it's on the two sides. Yeah. But yeah, above the ear, but inside. Excellent. (laughs) And um, and we're going to talk about a lot of stuff here. Okay, so we're just diving in. We got a lot to go over. So let's start with, um, what is Epilepsy. What is this temporal lobe epilepsy? What does that mean? Because people think grand mal seizures <laughs> and people frothing yeah. on the floor, and that's not really what we're talking about today. No, yeah, not right? necessarily. Most, uh, uh, but I'll just I'll just uh, say for, for, uh, within the subject of cults, we're talking about cult leaders. Yes, cult leaders. We we might also mention some cult members, but in general, the question of cult members and why people join cult is a much bigger and more interesting and more general question. Yes, but what's going on with cult leaders? It's a secondary question, but also very interesting. Um, <laughs> now, um, so temporal lobe epilepsy is just a name for epilepsy happening in a part of the brain called the temporal lobe. Okay. And 
Epilepsy usually refers to a scar in the brain. It can also be a blood clot um, or something like that. And it is a place that you get um, uh, electrical storms mm -hmm. starting in that part of the brain. Okay. And so that part of the brain is, there's always a little, either a little pilot light <laughs> that's burning in that part of the brain. And it's generating a... a, a, a a localized little storm, or sometimes the storm can take over the entire brain, in which case people might have grand mal seizures. Now, grand oh. mal seizures are what pe normal people that don't know much about epilepsy associate with epilepsy because that's the one where you're shaking on the floor, you're urinating on yourself, you're right, you, you super, might bite through your tongue, yeah, you and all that strength, right. and, and um. Many times it comes with all sorts of psychological effects, but um, temporal lobe epilepsy does not necessarily come with grand mal seizures. Um, and there's many, many types of seizures that are not grand mal. Mm -hmm. There's like, I think I saw 70, a list of... Or, yeah, you know, there's a lot of different stuff that can happen. Of, and they can last for a long time, you know, so... For example, you can have deja vu for days on end. Wow! <laughs> when you're seizing the whole time. Right, and um, let me let me uh, go, yeah. go ahead. So Sorry. the causes of epilepsy, you can be born with it. You can get it in the middle of your life. You can get it from a disease such as encephalitis. Oh. You can get it from a blood clot. You can get it from head trauma, just getting hit in the head. Right. And um. And then, or you can you can start with a slight epilepsy and then make it get worse because you, you know, right? Uh, and even severe intoxication, severe alcohol withdrawal, all those things can end up with a blood clot or something. And so, because of that, we can compare people before their epilepsy and after their epilepsy, which we cannot in people like. Uh, with schizophrenia, for example, because mm -hmm. even when they get the schizophrenia, before that, they were pre-schizophrenics. Mm. So they just had the, it was brewing in them. Right. While with epilepsy, you can be a completely healthy, regular person. So it's actually quite easier to compare the before the epilepsy and after the epilepsy. Right. Okay, so, cool. So it's actually, it's easier to know about it. Um, another thing about... Uh, um, Epilepsy is that every epilepsy is different because it's a scar in the brain. Mm -hmm. Every scar, no two people have the same shaped scar exactly. Right. And we have to remember that every person's brain is different. Right. And so you have a scar, you have uh, that's that's different, and a brain that's different. And so these are generalized things. Now I'll tell you a little bit about the history yeah. of temporal lobe epilepsy. This is in the late seventies. So first of all. It was described, the symptoms are described by Fyodor Dostoevsky in the 19th century. In a book called The, the Double? The Idiot. The Idiot, okay. Yes. There's a character there that describes the, the, the symptoms. Now, at, um, at the time, this was just literature. Right. Dostoevsky, the late Dostoevsky, had apparently temporal lobe epilepsy, which is why he knew the symptoms. <laughs> Um, uh, then there's a lot of very um, uh, famous creative people that are supposed to or have been 
you know, posthumously suspected. You cannot diagnose someone, and we're not diagnosing even Hubbard because diagnosis you need to talk to someone. <laughs> we're, He's a little not here anymore to talk to. Yeah, doing armchair diagnosis. So this is just speculation. Correct. But people have speculated that people like Edgar Allan Poe, mm. um, Philip K. Dick, which is a, a oh the guy who wrote Blade Runner, the yeah. Android stream of electric sheep. Yeah. Um, uh, Marcel Proust, no, not not Proust, uh, Flaubert. There's a mm. few authors because uh, one of the symptoms is graphomania. I am certain that Ayn Rand suffered from oh, okay. epilepsy. All right, but I haven't seen anybody else say it. So. Right, and that word you just dropped, graph graphomania. graphomania. Yeah, yes. what is that? So that's writing a lot of text. Right. Is it also referred to as hypergraphia? Yeah. Okay, and that's one symptom of a of a whole yes. array of symptoms that could indicate this and condition. If it it it's more so today we type with two hands, mm -hmm. so both parts of the brain do the writing. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, you write with just a pen, so just one side of the brain. Right. So it depends on which side of the brain your epilepsy is in. Oh. But if you're uh, um, if you can't read and write. If you're illiterate, then that manifests as you speaking endless amount of speech, but you need to be heard. So you don't speak alone because that's nobody's hearing. So you go to the park and you speak to. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. Passersby. Okay. But if uh, you're literate, you can just write a whole lot of text, assuming that it would be read. So it's you're you're not actually alone. So mm. people like Soren Kierkegaard, the the philosopher. I mean, I, there's an article that shows that he has all the symptoms, right? <laughs> except for the the sexuality stuff, which they don't know. But they say all the other ones are very clear. And the guy wrote an enormous amount of text. <laughs> well, I tell you what comes to mind right now is I think of the classic or what is maybe kind of become a stereotype of a uh, psychotic serial killer type is the is the the Kevin Spacey character from the movie Seven, mm -hmm. who they get into his apartment, they find notebooks <laughs> and notebooks of yeah. of you know, and the and the Unabomber and the you know K Kaczynski, right? Just yeah. just just journals and journals and journals. I mean, just stuff that you know this person <laughs> has dedicated hundreds of hours to writing this stuff. And I um and that is again a symptom, you know, is is could be a so, pointer in this direction. So when uh, they they started speculating in the 70s, people like um Geschwind and, and other neurologists that we have this thing called temporal lobe epilepsy. Mm -hmm. At first they call it Dostoevsky's epilepsy. No kidding. Yeah. Huh. And then they decided to do an experiment. Yep. They're gonna write up a, a, a letter, a questionnaire, and they're gonna send it to a bunch of epileptics of various kinds. And at the end, there was an open-ended question, and the hypothesis is that the people with temporal lobe epilepsy will write more text. Yeah. So, what they they and and they they write, you know, you can add more pages if you need to add more. Mm -hmm. And what they didn't quite expect is that they and when they got the questionnaires back in the mail, what they found out, the, the, the speculation was that temporal lives would write more. Mm -hmm. What they didn't expect is that you can tell from the weight of an envelope. 
<laughs> if it was the prologue epilogue. Right. They thought maybe they might write a few more paragraphs or yeah. something, but I think yeah. that, that from my recollection, the average person wrote uh, uh, one paragraph or two, and the average temporal lobe epileptic wrote 40 pages or, wow. or, or wow. 20 pages. It was just. <laughs> wow. Well, when you look at, you know, we're going to harp on this one for just a second because when you look at. Uh, as we have talked about so many times with L. Ron Hubbard, the the scope of work, the thousands and thousands of pages of work that constitutes L. Ron Hubbard's Scientology is, it, it's not just 5,000 recorded lectures. <laughs> it's a body of work that arguably could be the largest religious body of work, especially one that is created by ostensibly one guy. That exists anywhere. Yeah. You know, it, it far exceeds Christian theology <laughs> texts. And, you know, even, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I've always hesitated to say this, but even, you know, all the Jewish texts and all the arguments yeah, well, and all the things, right? Hubbard kind of outwrote them all. <laughs> yeah. um, if you if you look at the, the collective writing of Martin Luther... Ah, yeah. Now, Martin Luther is speculated to have an, an ear condition that, that actually manifests as temporal lobe epilepsy. Oh, so okay. They don't really know, but they think it was actually a, a, an infection in the ear that the, the ear is very closely connected to the... Sure. Um, ...and the hearing part of the brain. And uh, he's got... You got a lot, eight, huh? Eight, like 80 giant volumes. Yeah, a lot of writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, these guys just sat and wrote a lot. And Hubbard did. He would stay up all night. He would he would be pounding out on his typewriter, or he would be writing, and just volumes of this stuff. And this is actually one of the I think one of the most uh, um, hard to refute arguments by Scientologists, saying that okay, there's two options: Hubbard was either a con man, mm -hmm. or he was not a con man. Right. If he was a con man, he would just make money and enjoy his life. Yep. But he didn't. He wrote half a million pages for Scientology. Con men don't put that much effort. Right. What's the conclusion? He was not a con man. Right. <laughs> but there's a third option. Exactly. He suffered from a condition, a neurological condition that... Now, when Hubbard is uh, studied, for example, in the, the Australian Commission in 68, yep. temporal lobe epilepsy is not something that the scientific world knows about. Correct. When did it, when did it actually become a... Okay, here's a thing. We have a name for it. So uh, I think in, in 77 is when the Bear Fedio Inventory uh, article comes out. Okay. I think that there are speculations in the mid-70s. Now, of course, everybody that read Dostoevsky would, <laughs> or the personal letters of Edgar Allan Poe, which he describes uh, some of this stuff, um, might have been familiar with it, but... This, the, the world of science and of neurology um, became, it became a diagnosis in the 70s. Now, epilepsy, I just say that it's not in the DSM. It's not in Diagnostics and Statistic Manual mm -hmm. of Psychiatric Disorders. Mm -hmm. And the reason is, is because epilepsy is diagnosed with a brain scan right. or an EEG. Right. So that book says, oh, no, that's neurology. This is, um, now there are, when you do have a brain scan, it might not show you have epilepsy. It doesn't mean you don't have it, mm. but it might show you have it and then you definitely have it. <laughs> right. So it's a hit or miss baby on the, on the brain scans. 
Yes, but sometimes they need to do it again, you know, because okay. you're in a different, it, it, it wasn't flaring or, or, or something. But um, but in general, you will not find it in uh, the, the psychiatric literature because it's neurology. Right. But this distinction between neurology and psychiatry, which is two types of doctors that work on the same organ. Right. The brain doctors, but they're two different doctors. Right. And many times people with the symptoms of temporal lobe epilepsy look like they have psychiatric uh, situation. Mm -hmm. And so one of the symptoms of temporal lobe epilepsy, the neurologists say, is that the psychiatrist will get it wrong and diagnose you as something either bipolar or schizophrenic or some other schizoaffective disorder because some some of the stuff looks like psychosis. Right. But... Um, it's actually a neurological situation and not a psychiatric situation. Okay, good. Well, this might be a good time for me to drop this little bit. And I'll link to this paper, uh, amongst other things, in the show notes. But I wanted to point out, we, I, I you know, went into the literature. I, for the audio guys, I, here's my paper rattling. And I just wanted to give a little bit of information. I'm going to summarize a little bit here because this is uh, academic writing and I don't want to, you know, burden you guys with having to translate this stuff. But basically in this study, it talks about the fact that this is a complicated issue and there are a lot of factors at play when you're dealing with people's behavior and when you're dealing with their neurology, with their brain and, and how they how the brain affects their behavior. So realize that when we're talking about stuff like this, we are simplifying or talking about different aspects of something that is a very complicated picture. There's There are very few things in this picture that are absolutely yes and absolutely no. But the research tends to indicate um, that people who have this TLE condition, have the, the, the scars in the brain in these areas, have behavior that indicates more often than not that that behavior will point to TLE, that there is a TLE component to this. Um, and that includes um, deepened emotions, altered religious and sexual concerns, hypergraphia, as we were just going over, and a list of other things, which we'll go over in more detail here. But there is a statistically significant reason to believe that TLE does bring about these behaviors. It's not just a random guess is, I guess, the point I'm trying to make here, right? And this has been a studied thing. You, This is not something that gets talked about on talk shows or, you know, in the general public. They don't really deal with epilepsy that often. It seems to be kind of some over there kind of thing. But Yuval's ideas here about this, right, connecting this to the cult leaders and looking at how cult activity and extreme, in other words, extreme behavior, extreme religious behavior, extreme behavior of other kinds, as I said, we'll go over all those symptoms, um, could help explain what's going on with these people. And I, as we did when I, when we did our first show, it doesn't justify what they're doing, <laughs> but it explains what they're doing. And it's not just a matter of the simple binary, was he a con man or not? Is it possible that somebody could have a deep religious euphoric belief in themselves and also be a pathological liar and also be a megalomaniac? Yes, and could that megalomania and could all that lying 
have something to do with this physical condition? Of course it could. And that's kind of how I'm so fascinated yeah. by this. Now, the, you know? if you look at other temporal lobe epileptics, so there are the horrible ones, right? The L. Ron Hubbard, the Ayn Rand. Right. But there are very nice... Correct. That's the and that's the complicated part. So it's not. It's the boogeyman. It's not. Oh, you got TLE, and that's the whole thing. And so it's not that. The symptoms might be that you're chosen by God, but some people might actually be not not flaunted, or or it's just a personal belief that they have. But they're actually regular. They seem like decent, regular, not narcissistic, not pathological liars. But when it happens to a pathological liar that's a narcissist, things can become more, uh, um, you know, sinister. Exactly. So, so it's not even the case. So I, again, I just want to be super clear. It's not even the case that TLE is some boogeyman or some condition that you're doomed to be an asshole for the rest of your life, right? <laughs> it's not like that at all. And it's just here's a here's a list of of of, of behaviors and and personality traits that come out of this that kind of nail L. Ron Hubbard to a T. You know. Yes, and we have to remember that L. Ron Hubbard is undiagnosed. And untreated. Correct. So Correct. there are people today who have this, but they there's medication for it. There's brain surgery that some people get for it. And so it's uh, um, it's manageable. Now, one of the problems is that, as we'll see, one of the symptoms is paranoia. Yeah. And so some people who have it actually are afraid to tell it to their doctor. Mm-hmm. And as such, they're also under-diagnosed and under-treated. Mm. But one of the lucky accidents is that if you are, you don't tell all the symptoms, you tell some, and you seem erratic, you seem manic, the doctor thinks that you have bipolar disorder, right. they might write you medicine, and that medicine is for seizures as well. Oh, so okay. You, you can actually be misdiagnosed and given the correct medicine that actually helps you. Oh, my goodness. So... And sometimes the doctor says, I don't need to determine if this is, I'm just giving you that this is temporal lobe epilepsy or bipolar disorder or mm-hmm. when you're just manic. And I'm just going to give you the same drug that we would give to either one of them. Right. It just quiets down some of this electrical storms in the brain. Got it. Um, so, as I said, Hubbard is un- untreated. Understood. And, and it would have, of course, in reality, been absolutely impossible in, in in all the world of all possible things i will absolutely assert that it is impossible that l ron hubbard ever would have been diagnosed with this because he never would have gone to a doctor who would have been diagnosing him in this yeah. way no i mean maybe you know. maybe when he was a teenager <laughs> maybe before he was, yeah before, before he went to work, right exactly before he became yeah. hubbard Exactly. So, um, and in fact, actually, well, okay, so um, so let's take a look at um, how did you just briefly first hit on this, just for interest okay. sake, right? Because yeah. it's kind of interesting. So, I mean, I was, uh, uh, since the mid-90s, I've been reading a lot about Scientology, and cults in general, but Scientology, I mean, I was on the Xeno.net in, in, in 96, and, and it's just super fascinating. <laughs> it is, isn't it? 
And I, I read John Atak, my good friend, John Atak's book, um, A Piece of Good uh, Blue Sky, which mm-hmm. is a recommended book. Mm-hmm. And I also uh, read other, uh, I think I already read some Hubbard biography. And so I was familiar with it. And for my research, I think this was even for my master's degree, um, I read a book called Seized. Mm. Seized and... Um, and the subtitle is Temporal Lobe Epilepsy as a Cultural, Artistic, and Something Phenomenon. Oh. And it's a fun book. It's easy to read. It's by Yves Laplante from the year 2000. And when I'm reading this book, I am just, this is Hubbard. I'm just... <laughs> These two things <laughs> kind of came together. Yes. Yeah. So I'm sure that everybody noticed it. Right. Because it was just staring me in the face. So I email, um, you know, I'm already on all those forums. I mean, I'm I'm not very active, but I'm reading them. So I email Arnie Larma. Right. Passed away yep. a while ago. He was a very prominent uh, ex-Scientologist critic uh, in the in the community for a long yeah. time. And, and an authority and someone yeah. who would know. And I ask him, who talks about Hubbard having epilepsy? And he writes me, I, nobody about that Mm-mm. so i'm like maybe i'm wrong i mean <laughs> someone should have noticed this but i think that one of the 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 things is just because it's late 70s mm-hmm. and late 70s it's only in the neurology literature it actually becomes more well known in the early 80s mm. when it's actually accepted by science it's speculation in science in the 70s okay i mean it's they talk about it but right. it's still they don't know. And even since then, I mean, we're yeah. still seeing papers. They're still going full boogie on this yeah. thing, studying it. So I, when I went to the, the conference in Toronto, the Getting Clear? Yes. Yes. Yes, that's it. Which was a fun conference. That's where I met my friend John Atak. And I, 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 I don't know if I printed it out or I showed him the, the list of the Bare Fedio inventory, which will go, get, go over. Yeah. And he immediately said, oh, that's Hubbard. <laughs> right. And I show it to Jerry Armstrong. He's like, oh, yeah, that's, that's, that looks all familiar. Yeah, yep. that, those, that's that collection of traits. That that's, looks something. Um, and then from them, I, I, I got more anecdotes about not just the, with John Atak, he told me of the 18 uh, elements on the list on the Bare Fedio, um, 17 he immediately recognized now in the neurology literature there's a list of 18 things and they say temporal lobe epileptic is likely to have more than seven of these right (laughs) and and we see 17 of them immediately immediately 18th he did think it took him 20 seconds to come up with the examples and i think that was the guilt right but but he also is like, yeah, well, no, actually from his wife or, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a stretch on that one. But, I, but it, you know, it, it's it, it, when you only need seven. <laughs> and that also, and again, let's be clear, right? Again, this is, this is not loosey-goosey science. It's, it, there are exact phenomena we're talking about here. But it's so variable from one person to the next to the next to the next. That's the thing that makes it so screwy with people is we have these, this, again, they have this scar tissue in certain parts of the brain and it causes certain behavior or it can enable or 
uh, amplify certain behaviors. And, 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 and when you see 17 of the 18 lining up on L. Ron Hubbard, you kind of go, yeah, it looks kind of likely this dude had something connected with this. And that's, that's the whole point of today. And, and, and these are just the personality traits. Yeah. It's the physiological traits. <laughs> yeah. Where there's obscure ones like thinking you have a doppelganger. Right. And stuff like, that. And like, no, Hubbard had that too. That's right. That's <laughs> so right. That, that, that really like makes it, you know, very, very, and, it's not like there's a, an alternative theory that could explain Hubbard. Exactly. <laughs> there was alternative, we can weigh the two. Well, the only but, thing that's annoyed me over the years about this is that the quote-unquote theories about this have been simply, as we were going over, the question of, is he a con man or not? And everybody yeah. just wants a really binary answer to this. Was he aware of the fact that he was deceiving and conning people for the sake of getting money, sex, power, from them? The answer is yes. Now, <laughs> does that mean he never had a serious bone in his body about any of this and didn't believe any of it? No, it doesn't mean <laughs> that at all. Hubbard was a very complicated guy. And the more you dig into this kind of stuff, the more complications come to the surface. Personally, for me, I find that fascinating. I find that very, very interesting. Some people are like, no, 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 it must be so simple. And it's not simple, not with this yeah. guy. In, in a way, you, you know. can say that he, he conned himself. Now, yes, that's now, right. Lying to yourself is a contradiction in terms. Mm. Lying by definition, if you look in the dictionary, does not, cannot happen to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know. But, and yet it does. <laughs> exactly. Depends <laughs> on which version of yourself you're talking uh, to, right? But... Um, before we go into the, the, the actual list, which we'll, yeah. we'll get to shortly, but yeah. um, I, I want to say that the, some aspects of this, uh, some, some items on this list are also present in cult members. Yes. Yes, that's and true. There's a few possibilities as to why this is happening. Yep. Um, or each one of the, they all can be true. But one of them, it could be that those cult members are trying to emulate a cult leader, and the cult leader is displaying these traits. Correct. So they're just trying to copy them. That's Another funny. option is that... Actually, if I could clarify a point mm -hmm. on that one, just for just a second, because some of y'all might be thinking, why would somebody want to copy... You know, uh, you know some of these weird ass phenomena, right? And and some of these things are a little weird. And the reason is because in Scientology, as with other cultic groups, high control groups, you have a phenomena here. This is a characteristic of these groups that the that the codependency of the of the relationship, the followers and the leaders, they're in this. They they both need each other, and and one of the points of need is that the followers want to be or want to be more like or want to emulate the cult leader. That's that's part of the picture, and that's conscious and unconscious. That correct, and that's and so you can have conscious and subconscious efforts at that. And uh, they will adopt speech mannerisms of the cult leader. They will dress like the cult leader. They will eat and smoke or not smoke or drink or not drink or, you know, various mannerisms. They would ask themselves, what would Ron do? That's where I was going. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Is there's a saying in Scientology and in other cults, there are similar thought-stopping cliches and mantras that reinforce this idea, such as in Scientology, Scientologists are continually asking themselves, 
what would Ron do in this situation, right? Faced with a problem, what would Ron do? Not what should I do? (laughs) Never that. (laughs) And having lived in there for decades, I'm telling you, it was never what should I do. It's how I should deal with this the way L. Ron Hubbard would. And so you get this personality copying thing. And when that happens over with cultural social reinforcements and everybody wants you doing that, everybody agrees this is the right way to be, you end up with a cult leader who has a bunch of mini-me's following him or her. And that's and that's that's how this can happen with that's one way this can happen with yeah. cult members. Another way is that it could be that this type of set of of traits that come together as a package happen to people that experience a whole hell of a lot of the emotion of awe. For Hubbard and other temporal epilepsy, uh, people who suffer from that condition, um, that comes automatically. They feel awe a lot. Mm. They have extreme, super religious experiences before breakfast and then a few a day. Stuff that some mm. people would have once in a lifetime or never. And this is yeah. not and this is not just an L. Ron Hubbard. We see this with religious leaders. We see this with uh spiritual leaders, yeah. quote unquote, right? So the, the yeah, the famous ones that are supposed to suspect as being the uh, uh, epileptic are uh Ellen G. White. Mm-hmm. The, the one of the founders of Seventh Day Adventism, mm-hmm. um, but I mean, some people also speculate about whatever Saint Paul. You know. Oh, but, sure. But <laughs> and his and his and his. Uh, what was that uh, uh, moment he had? The Damascus. Yes, the Damascus. Yeah. Yes. Um, but the. Um, but yeah, the, there's there's certain. I mean, Ellen G. White is is the classic, and I guess mm. Elrond Hubbard. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, did Mary Baker Eddy's name get on that list? Or? I'm not sure. I don't think that that I was Christian Science. Did she write a whole lot of text? I think she did. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not a hundred percent, but I think so, so. I will just tell you that over the last couple of years, I've I've talked to. It might have been even three people, but certainly two that I talked to, and those are people that don't know anything about my work or anything of. And they told me that, yeah, you know, uh, someone I know that when I was young, I was in a cult for nine months. I joined. I knew the leader. It was a small little thing. And um, when I tell them about this list of traits and the possibility of temporal epilepsy, I've had at least two people immediately tell me, oh, this is clearly my cult leader. Very clearly my cult leader. So this question of how common it is temporal lobe epilepsy or the symptoms of temporal epilepsy in cult leaders is anecdotally seems like a, a thing. But if any of you wants to write a PhD about do a study, uh, that is something that you can, you can, that's a, a thing, a, a PhD about. Yeah. Um, so anecdotally, it seems like it, but what I was going to say that if the people there are people who have a whole lot of awe experiences because they have a scar in their brain. Mm. That's like Elron Hubbard. But there's also people who have a whole lot of awe experiences because they do auditing all the time, because they do uh, training routines all the time, because they meditate for yeah. 14 hours a day, because they do sensory deprivation and all sorts of the many, the causes of awe are many and, and, and complex. But, um, it could be that if you have feel awe a lot, 
then it comes with those traits. And that's interesting because, of course, in a group like Scientology, and let's be, let's be just bluntly honest about this, you're chasing that high all the time. It, it, I, we've, we've actually said that it can become like an addiction. Um, I've seen that in Scientologists when I was on staff looking back and seeing the, the sort of fervent need to get in session. It wasn't like, <laughs> oh, I'd like to get in. It was like, shut up and take my money. I got to get in now, you know, kind of, kind of reactions. And sometimes it was even a little disturbing when I was a Scientologist. We were like, God damn, girl. Uh, but, some, but you see this kind of behavior. And, of course— it feels great. <laughs> it feels so awesome to have an awe euphoria experience. You know, we're talking about awe, A-W-E, right? Like euphoria, like you're out of your head. You're Wonder. blown away. You are as big as the universe. You are, I mean, there's so many little phrases we had in Scientology for this. <laughs> other groups have other phrases for this. Every group has a description of this euphoric experience and a whole laundry list of, of reasons why you're feeling this way that frankly have nothing to do with reality. It's the cult leader's interpretation of reality so that you'll buy into it and keep coming back for the euphoria. And too much of this, and that's not too much of anything, even the big blowout, wow, my mind is as big as the universe, can be bad for you. Yeah, that's that's vastness related. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's let's get to the list. Yeah, let's take a look at it. Um, now, also, before one last thing we'll get into here, just in terms of, again, uh, and let's remind everybody, um, purely conjectural. This is all conjectural stuff here, right? But Hubbard, there, were a, there was a particular moment that Hubbard relates in 1938 that could be his TLE moment. Yes, and it could be also when it got worse. Could it, be that. Yeah, or exacerbated, yeah. right? Yeah. And 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 what what was that? So in, I think it's thirty eight, and he is at a dentist chair. Mm -hmm. Back when he did take care of his teeth, <laughs> the <laughs> I, last time he tried. <laughs> I, I guess he did go through that phase. Yeah. Uh, so if it's thirty eight, he would be twenty seven years. He was twenty seven. That's right. And he's getting uh, um, nitrous oxide. And he's going to get some dental surgery. Yeah. And um, he describes that during the, the, the event, he describes a whole lot of things. And they all are related to the functions of the temporal lobe. So I'll tell you. Yeah. The temporal lobe, it hosts within the temporal lobe. There are organs that are not cortical. They're not part of technically the lobe. But they're inside the lobe, and that's uh, organs like the amygdala. Oh, okay. So we're talking about subparts of the brain. Yes. Yes. Okay. So they're. Oh, the amygdala is in the temporal it, lobe. Yes. It's oh. not. It's not technically because the the lobes are the the cortex. Yeah. And the amygdala and the hippocampus are precortical, but they are located. In the middle of the temporal lobe. Ah, okay. So they're connected to everything around them. Yeah. And we have two amygdalas. And uh, um, 
the temporal lobe is also related to the senses of hearing, mm-hmm. the sense of smell, mm-hmm. and the sense of balance. Okay. And which is also related to vastness and the assessment of size. Right. And also related to memory and emotions, because that's the amygdala and the hippocampus. Now, mm. when I say that those are things that are associated with the temporal lobe, I'm not saying that they happen in the temporal lobe, but the temporal lobe is a major element in their happening. Right. Because it's because because it's are, are not simple. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's not to one, this happens here, this happens there. Right. But damage in the temporal lobe affects that. <laughs> and got it. So the because humans, because we stand on two legs, mm-hmm. our sense of balance is much, much more important. Mm-hmm. And because of that, our sense of, in general, the sense of balance needs, is the inner ear. Mm-hmm. Because that's as far away from each other, so it can tell the difference. Mm-hmm. Now, for us, it needs to be so important for humans to immediately notice when we're about to fall. That the amygdalas in humans got pushed to right next to the balance system. So in other animals, the amygdalas are closer to the middle of the brain. Oh, how interesting. In humans, they get pushed to the edge, and it's partially because of how important balance is to us. Okay. Um, But that's also why it's so fast when when you lose your balance. The emotional (laughs) (laughs) startling, that's the fastest it can. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, that's true. It take time to process that. That's right. Um, But also why our experiences come with a vestibular, and vestibular is just a sense of balance and motion component that you feel like you're floating you feel like you're heavy you feel like you're light you feel like you're uh, uh weightless so that those are vestibular hallucinations that are com- come with awe also a sense of vastness how interesting and that's all connected with our sense of balance and how we yes. perceive our body in relation to the environment but also the sense of hearing right mm-hmm. so when you're hearing voices you think that they're authoritative when you see visions, you think you're seeing visions. Um, so, uh, the, and, and also the sense of importance, the sense of relevance, um, um, very important aspects of culture, mm-hmm. of, of language, are in the temporal lobe or they're in the corner between the temporal and the paredial lobe. But uh, the junction, it's the edge of the temporal lobe. But also a lot of aspects of dreaming. Um, so it's... it's uh, it's, wow. it's important stuff that yeah. <laughs> that no, that's really that really is. And there's a lot of different things coming together there, or lots of different life experiences that can be affected by that. Your dream life, your real life, your feelings of powerfulness or powerlessness. Mm-hmm. Uh Hubbard often, for example, would, would bounce back and forth between those things, right? There was, mm-hmm. there was bipolar phenomena there. Um, but the extremeness of both ends of his bipolar conditions were noteworthy by people who were with him at the time that we've heard about. When he was depressed, in other words, it wasn't just he was a little down. The world was over. Yeah. His life was a ruin. He was drinking himself into the ground, right? Those were the kind of depressive episodes he would have, and he would have them more frequently than people know. And the, the, just in general, living with this condition, yeah. when it's undiagnosed, untreated, is really, 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 really unpleasant. It's taxing. There are points of elation and ecstasy, but in general, it is, it's exhausting. You don't sleep well. It's really, really 
very, very difficult uh, uh, and unpleasant condition uh, um, to, to, to live with. And so, right. And, and that, and, and again, um, when we look at Hubbard's private writings, when we look at, um, you know, the anecdotes told by people who knew him behind the scenes, his lovers, his uh, co-workers, his associates, they relate this kind of personality, a tortured mm-hmm. soul, a person yep. who really was not happy, putting on a good face, not suffering in silence. Hubbard was not a silent <laughs> sufferer. Uh, he wanted you always to be part of it, but his interpretations of these events is what we're talking about here. And his interpretation of these was that he had a guardian angel. He had occult magic powers. He could do things other people couldn't do or see things other people couldn't see. And as a result of that, that get that, and with this 1938 thing, part of that whole surgery was that he had this massive, massive vision, or we, we could call hallucination, of dying, going to another place, being exposed to all the knowledge of the universe laid out like he described as a smorgasbord in front of him, and he was able to sample from this, but then he got pulled back. Yes, so right? first of all, thinking that you're dead is a control of epilepsy. We'll get to the non-personality symptoms. Uh, He describes floating. Mm -hmm. He describes hearing voices that tell Mm -hmm. him survive. That's right. And don't tell. Don't let let him remember was the last bit. And feelings of knowing. Yes. The feelings of knowing, the smorgasbord of I can know and know. And and, and so the feeling of knowing, which is a, 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 a... Contradiction in term, because feelings are feelings and knowing is knowing. But (laughs) there are feelings of knowing, like certainty or a sense of authenticity, realness, correctness. So, um, yeah. uh, uh, And when he gets out, when he wakes up from, first of all, he imagines that the nurse gives him a knowing look. (laughs) Whatever, (laughs) you know. (laughs) <laughs> okay, dude. <laughs> and he gets up. Uh, he doesn't sleep for a couple of days. He like says he makes a gallon of coffee, gets into his room and starts writing for two or three days. Yep. Writes a story called Dark Excalibur. Uh, the Dark Sword. The Dark Sword. The Dark Sword is what it was originally called, and then a friend suggested maybe they call it Excalibur, uh, and yeah. it, it had a few different things. It ended up becoming known as the Excalibur Manuscript. <laughs> but he brings it to a publisher. Yep. He says, they, I mean, he tells a story of someone who read it and jumped out a window. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. <laughs> he, said it, he said it created extreme reactions in people, whether it was euphoric reactions <laughs> or whether it was absolutely awful, life-ending yeah, kind that, of th- thing. Those are stories. <laughs> These are all just stories. I, none of us believe that those things actually happen, by the way. Yeah, but yeah. you do see this problem with sleeping, graphomania, Feeling like you're chosen. Yeah. All right. So let's let's go. Yeah, so let's go through it. Okay. So the first one, these are uh this is from the article from 1977 called uh, it's called the Bear Fedio. Bear like the animal and Fedio is F-E-D-I-O. Um those are two guys, right? Two yeah, two two authors. I think they're guy maybe maybe well scientists. so the first one is just called emotionality. Mm. And it is described as deepening of all emotions, sustained, sustained intense effect. 
Okay. Uh, effect meaning emotional reactions yeah, of the responses. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's clear. And yeah. I think we have it in both Hubbard and also many uh, uh, cult members in a way. Not Absolutely. Absolutely. The next is, uh, you can say the sub, you know, the next few. Uh, elation, comma, euphoria is the next one. And it's described as grandiosity, exhilarated mood, diagnosis of manic depressive disease. So notice this is neurologist saying Psychiatrists will get it wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, next is sadness, described as uh, discouragement, tearfulness, self-deprecation, diagnosis of depression, suicide attempts. So with the elation, we have it with Hubbard, we have it with cult leaders. With the sadness, a lot of people don't associate that with Hubbard, but... But it was there. Yeah. And it was just hidden. Yeah. Right? Because it was socially shameful behavior, especially yeah. in the 1950s. You, you, you weren't going to be out yeah. there showing your emotions. Are you kidding me? <laughs> this is post-World War II, right? Men are men. Okay. Now, so. ne next is one that's not, <laughs> not hidden. The next two, uh, anger and aggression. Mm -hmm. So anger is increased temper, irritability, aggression, overt hostility, rage attacks, violent crimes, murder. Um, and uh, those are... Classic. Hubbard, classic in Hubbard. Classic. And also in, in many cult members yes, sometimes. That's right. Uh, next is an interesting one. It's uh, titled Altered Sexual Interest. And it's described as loss of libido, hyposexualism, which is reduced sexuality, fetishism, transvestism, exhibitionism, hypersexual episodes. Mm -hmm. So general reduced libido, but hypersexual episodes, episodes of heightened libido. And it's interesting that a lot of people talk about cult leaders as people that do it to have a lot of sex. Yep. And some cult leaders do have a lot of sex. Correct. But it does seem that Hubbard did not rape his messengers. Uh, he was not a pedophile. Yeah, but he also didn't surround himself with adult women that he would have sex with. Well, or... let's back up a second okay. on that one. Let's walk that one back, actually, because Hubbard was known as a serial philanderer. Mm -hmm. All through his adult life, he has three marriages, and he mm -hmm. cheated on every one of his wives. He not only physically abused them, but he ran around like a dog. His first wife commented on this. His second wife certainly commented on it. And his third wife uh, wasn't happy about it. That was Mary Sue, his yeah. final wife, right? And um, and we have testimony. I mean, I've seen video mm -hmm. of women who said, "Yeah, no, that's that." I mean, he did you know? I he, I was one of them. Yeah. Um. So, uh. So this is a documented fact mm -hmm. that Hubbard was a serial philanderer, and it's always been of interest to me because both too much and too little, right? Yeah. Uh, are on this list, mm -hmm. and there was a switch that almost turned. In the, in the mid to late 1960s, where Hubbard no longer was not only not a serial philanderer, he wasn't having sex, period. Yeah. And, it, and he wasn't at an age where he was no longer physically yeah. incapable. It was just, he just wasn't interested. And that happened to coincide with the time when these messenger girls, these literal minors, mm -hmm. uh, were being his messengers on the boat in the Sea Org. Yeah. So... I think, personally, my thinking is that it's simply luck mm -hmm. on the part of, uh, for for those girls, yeah. right? Uh, that they in that they came into Hubbard's sphere at the point where that switch had flipped, yeah, um, because he was a dog. 
I mean, just he'd he'd screw anything that moved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and that was the nineteen forties and fifties. Yeah, but also like strange, sadistic stuff sometimes. Oh, very much so. Yeah. And so and it, it, uh, it, all it, his it, it, it yeah. is the 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 fetishism. Yes, or, you know, it all lines yeah. up. In fact, what we see, what we can document or point to Hubbard's writings and other testimonials about specifically is that he was a wife beater. Mm-hmm. And he was somebody who tried to enforce uh, or force abortions on his wives. He would sit on them, beat them, kick them, etc. Wow. And then he wrote in Dianetics extensively about his own crimes and said, yeah, everybody in America is doing this. Uh, which was pure projection on his part, right? But that's all. That's why, a, quote unquote, attempted abortions, AAs as they call them in Dianetics, are described liberally throughout that book Mm -hmm. because it was Hubbard's own behavior. Yeah. So that's what we know about that. Okay. So um, next we have guilt. That's the, the, the hidden one uh, Mm. described as tendency for self scrutiny and self recrimination. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that any evidence for that comes in, is in, in just his wives telling stories of, of, and lovers, yeah. yes, um, is is an, uh, anecdotes about that. When and again, when he was depressed, man, I mean, it was days in the bottle. It was weeks. It was a it, it was a problem, and he would and he would make it a problem for people around him. And that and that went along with and and guilt, of course, was was always part of that picture. Okay, next is hypermoralism. Mm. Uh, that's sometimes uh, described as black and white thinking by others, but uh, Bear Fedio describes this as attention to rules with inability to distinguish significant from minor infraction, desire to punish offenders. Yeah. So I think he has that in spades. <laughs> in spades. And he was really able to let loose. If he wasn't able to let loose earlier, once he established the Sea Org, the Captain Bly came out, and that's you know that's how he described himself. He um, he was a man who you know punished people by having them push peanuts down a wooden deck with their noses. I mean, this was a man who who relished throwing people overboard and tying yeah. them up first. Uh, so, and the hypermoralism extends beyond cruelty. I want to point out that Hubbard set up, and one of the few things in Scientology that is actually quote unquote original to Hubbard is his justice system. Mm-hmm. And the, and it is a justice framework that is deviously, um, well, it's, it's, it's geniusly devious. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it, it, it looks like a structure that is going to resolve all the issues and internal problems and upsets between people and deal with criminal activities and deal with rule breaking. And in fact, all it does is uh, create a system where every single person who's subject to it is persecuted and uh, maligned and destroyed if they don't conform with every single thing Hubbard wants yep. them to do. And that's all it is. It is a masterful system of control. Snitch on someone else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he set up a cinch system in yeah. order to enable him to do that system. Yeah. And so the, if you want to talk about traits that carry on to cult members in Scientology, hypermoralism is a, is a great word to use for how righteous many Scientologists yeah. become about their own sense of ethics. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's such a there's a whole book on it in Scientology. This is not a this is not minutia of Scientology. This is front and center Scientology, and I and I just wanted to kind of highlight that because it goes beyond L. Ron Hubbard's individual acts of cruelty and goes to the entire system he created, mm-hmm. where he wanted this hypermoralism to be pushed down the line as one of the primary methods of control that exist in that group, and I don't think Hubbard was alone in that. Uh, in cults, right? But that's yeah. but we can look at that system and see that it's reflective of this. It's not just um, you know Hubbard's individual nonsense. Okay. Next is obsessionalism, described as ritualism, orderliness, compulsive attention to detail. Hmm. So <laughs> hmm. Hubbard was obsessed, and uh, compulsive attention to detail, I think, is something that was. Uh, I mean, look at the way that, look at the formalized process of Scientology auditing. Um, On paper, it is uh, kind of amazing. It's Mm -hmm. so structured. There's a model format for every single auditing session. There are exact words in quotes that you say to begin and end every session. This goes well beyond what goes on in psychology. Ritualism and orderliness. Correct. Lots of that. And, uh, and of course, the entire structure of the bridge. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing loosey-goosey, again, about Scientology in general. It's a very, very rigid and structured system. Um, and a lot of people walk in and they don't necessarily see all that to start with, and they don't quite get it. It takes years to get your head, get your wits all the way around it, because it's there's so much there to learn. Um, so this makes complete sense to me. Uh, next is circumstantiality, uh, described as loquacious, pedantic, overly detailed, and peripheral. Interesting. How does that? How do we see that manifest in normal folks, uh, regular, average folks? I should say. Well, I mean, overly detailed is more than regular detailed, mm-hmm. um, but and peripheral. It's it's focusing on not what's important sometimes. Oh, it is, okay. You know, the, yeah. you know, instead of seeing the whole picture and seeing what's going on, you focus on a detail. You're overly detailed and you're peripheral. Oh, and you're okay. pedantic about it. Well, this would certainly yeah. be Hubbard's management style, <laughs> as well as David Miscavige, to be honest, right? The micromanager. Yeah. Um, you know, and we all know that the micromanagers are not things that just exist in cults. Unfortunately, anybody who's at, who has a corporate job understands what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. But um, so it doesn't just have to be that all micromanagers have TLE. But it's interesting that it's a symptom of it because this sort of hyper detail oriented thing gets you down to the place where you're writing policy letters in Scientology about how to wash windows, how to how to clean cars, how to keep the flowers up, right? Um, let me just turn that back on there. Um, things like that, right? Every single little detail, every single little bit. And he's writing these policy letters while the IRS is taking away their tax exemption and they're under investigation in Australia and about to be banned there. This is in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And, and these are the things he has his attention on. So you can see, I, I can see here that it's not hard to connect these dots to Hubbard either. Now, next we have uh, what they call viscosity, and they describe a stickiness and tendency to repetition. So I'll, I'll describe the later. Yeah, story. what are we talking about there? So first of all, the tendency to repetition, that's, that's fairly obvious, because uh, a lot of stuff in Scientology involves repetition. A lot. A lot of repetition. Lot. 
Yeah. I mean, well, hell, there's an entire style of auditing called, uh, you know, duplicative questions where yeah. you're just spending hours asking a guy in a the room same the same question. Or hours. Or hours. Back and forth in a room. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I, we, and um, that was actually most aptly demonstrated uh, in case you have questions about this or, you know, I'm, I'm dropping all these references to Scientology auditing. I recommend checking out a kind of a kooky, weird film called The Master. Uh, by Paul Thomas Anderson, starring Joaquin Phoenix and um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. That film encapsulates Scientology. And you will see these things played out on screen. I don't know that Paul Thomas Anderson had a clue about any of this. He was just describing cult leaders and the codependent relationship with the followers. That's what that movie's about. But he drew from Scientology to make that point, and all of this stuff is in there, all of it, uh, which I think is fascinating because it speaks to his quality of writing and research, actually. Mm-hmm. But the duplicative aspect of Scientology and the repetition, the monotony of it is in that film, and I have not seen it communicated. The only reason I bring it up, I've never seen it communicated better anywhere else mm-hmm. what that feels like. Yeah. It's in that movie, so... Yeah, and that movie, it's not all of Scientology. It's aspects of Scientology. Correct. But so, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's so not don't, a, yeah. don't expect to, to... There's a lot no, of things about Scientology that are not in the movie. No, no, they don't get into the OT levels and yeah. Xenu and all that they stuff. Are, but but stuff. as far as I'm concerned, all the important stuff is in that movie from my perspective. Because yeah. I'm not about Xenu, right? That's, yeah. that's a tiny part of a tiny part of Scientology that all of us talk about all the time. But the important stuff is... Actually, as far as I'm concerned, it's this stuff. So you know? the other the other aspect of what they call viscosity or stickiness is um, that is that if if they talk to you, you get the sense that they will not stop talking to you. <laughs> so <laughs> I think I've done that to a few people sometimes. <laughs> but that is the reason why if you're walking on the street and a cult member wants to talk to you, a lot of people are afraid to start a conversation with a cult member Mm. because they don't know how it's going to, how long they're going to be stuck there trying to to talk. And the, 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 that's where the tendency to repetition is becomes parts of it. So it comes with um, an inability to understand social cues, Mm -hmm. like the social cue that I want this conversation to maybe wrap up. Mm, that's interesting because that would relate in some ways to people's understanding of um, certain aspects of autism, right? Or the social yeah. cue thing. So, yeah, yeah. Like kind of distantly related in a way. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Um, but uh, but here it's, it's it's a neurological symptom. Right. Um, and so. Well, the, it, it would be there too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, but, but yeah. Uh, um, so. So the, this one is is one that also is the tendency to repetition. I think in cult members we see it. Yeah, um, absolutely. Now next is a sense of personal destiny, I guess. Or something oh, okay. Like um, or or sense of personal being chosen and uh, events. It's described as events giving highly uh, charged personalized significance. Divide divine guidance ascribed to many features of patient's life. So one of the way this is uh, manifests is uh, something that technically it is called ideas of reference. 
Mm, ideas of reference. Yes. Mm. This is a symptom of a number of different psychological and also personality disorders, uh, psychiatric uh, disorders. And it is when you think that what you do affects, for example, the news or the weather or... Oh, you know, dear God, really? Who's going to win the election depends on whether or not I drink this glass of water or how I arrange things in my house determines how the, the, the news in the world. This is Scientology to a T. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I'm not even joking. This is exactly how Scientologists are taught to think. Mm-hmm. Because Hubbard's definition of responsibility and his talks and, <laughs> and writings on the topic of responsibility indicate that we are all responsible for everything that's going on all the time. I could literally pull out the book where he talks about this and he says you are responsible for a sniper killing a guy on a on a field of battle in a country you've never been in in a in a you know in a, on the other side of the world because you blew your nose differently than you should have or something. <laughs> not he doesn't you know the funny thing because is they didn't do he doesn't even have to he doesn't even connect the dots. Mm-hmm. He just says you are. Yeah. And then we had to figure out why, yeah, right? Uh, but it was this to a T, events... Um, Given highly charged personalized significance. Yes. Divide the guidance ascribed to many features of patient's life. Yes, absolutely. And this is where you get uh, Scientology, high-level Scientologists, OTs, they call it, operating thetans. Um, in Clearwater, they'll have a typhoon or a hurricane or a, you know, a bad weather thing. This is classic Scientology. And all the OTs will get together and go, okay, we're going we're gonna to get rid of that bad weather. We're going to protect the Clearwater Scientology location by, by, by diverting those, those storms with our OT powers. I wish I was kidding. I'm not. This is a common belief in Scientology that they have the ability to do this. People take credit for it. I mean, hell, when the free winds, the ship they have, mm-hmm. the yacht, I should say, uh, first set sail in 1988 and started delivering their highest level, OT level eight, the wall came down. Mm-hmm. And Scientologists immediately, without hesitation, took credit for that. <laughs> I'm talking about full credit, world events. You know, global politics, Russian economy, criminality had nothing to do with it. None of those factors had anything to do with it. It was the release of OT8. That's why the wall came down, right? The cancer boat, yeah. Yeah, the cancer boat, that's right, because it was uh, packed with blue asbestos for many years, and Scientology had not dealt with that, and people got cancer as a result. Next is hypergraphia. Yeah, it's gone over, right? Also... Uh, described as keeping extensive diaries, detailed notes, writing autobiography or novel. So, <laughs> well, Hubbard is the most translated author in the world because his body of work is so huge that when they translated it, it was like, oh my God, look at all this stuff. The guy wrote extensively of fiction across mm-hmm. every genre that exists, from Western to romance to mystery to sci fi. He wasn't just a sci fi writer. And I mean, extensively. He wrote a whole Western novel. That was his first novel, was a Western, not a sci-fi. Um, he wrote all of it, including fiction, nonfiction. He kept journals and diaries, right? We have those going back to his childhood. I, I don't have them, but John does. I, I want them, John. And um, he then did Scientology. Then after all that's done, 
Then he does Scientology. Half a million pages. That's right. <laughs> Ten volume science fiction series, Mission Earth in nineteen and okay. the nineteen eighties, and Mission Earth is or Battlefield Earth, gigantic book. The guy just <laughs> wouldn't stop writing. Yep. You know. Uh, next is uh, titled Religiosity. Okay. Holding deep religious beliefs, often idiosyncratic, multiple conversions, mystical states. Now, um, people with, uh, uh, so th- with the temporal lobe epilepsy, when you get all of this kind of stuff, it's called the Geschwind syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is many times described as involving hyper-religiosity. Mm-hmm. Or there's one neurologist I saw call it enhanced religiosity. Okay. It's McNamara. And... Um, yeah, it's now. I want to be. I, I want to ask you about this because I want to be clear because I don't want anybody getting the wrong idea about this. We are first off. No one is saying right now that because you have a religious belief, you have temporal lobe epilepsy or, or religious ex, uh, state, or or it, state. Yeah, or even mystical states or, or multiple conversion. Yeah, that's that's that's. <laughs> there's there, this is an extreme version of this, yeah. right? How does this manifest? How do we see this in people? Just a whole lot of awe. Okay. Feeling very, I mean, I, we, you saw, I, I made you see, uh, uh, mm-hmm. there's a, a, an episode of the show Nova about neurology and temporal lobe epilepsy. It is on YouTube. You can watch it. Um, mm-hmm. It was very enlightening, yeah. by the way. Uh, so I think T- Interviews with actual people who T- have it. Nova, yeah. And there you see this religiosity mm-hmm. and you see the intensity of the sincerity of the the emotional, you know, very emotionally intense religiosity and very seems very sincere and very actually heartfelt and and and, and authentic. This they're not faking. No. No, and that's and that's where we enter into these points earlier where I was talking about it's not a binary between Hubbard, con man, non-con man. This gets complicated. Um when you have people, when your brain's telling you stuff. Hey, guess what? You're going to believe it. Yeah. And when your brain's telling you in the middle of one of these uh, TLE, you know, one of these epileptic seizures, well, I mean, it's described here. I wrote this down. Um, okay. You're sitting here one fine day in your house or driving or at work, and suddenly you experience out of nowhere a sudden sense of fear or joy, a feeling that's what's happening has happened before, a sudden or strange odor or taste or a rising sensation in your belly like being on a roller coaster. And you got no reason to think any of this in the moment in the context you're in. Suddenly you're feeling all this stuff out of nowhere. What would you think is happening to you? Well, we're all going to interpret that event very differently, mm-hmm. right? And depending on what we believe what we think is, you know, what we think is already true, we're going to interpret all of this through that lens. Mm-hmm. Unless we start wondering whether somebody slipped us some acid, <laughs> right? But it can be like, you know, here you are in 1938, here you are in 1945, having an experience like this, how do you explain it? Mm-hmm. The, I'll tell you, the first thing you're not going to jump to is, oh, I wonder if this is a malfunction of my temporal lobes. <laughs> that's not what's going to occur to you, and that's not what occurs to any of these people. They end up having ideas and thinking that they are God, like with a capital G. Not that they are a God. They are God. Yeah. They are um, God's chosen agent. They are Jesus' chosen agent. They are Muhammad's chosen agent. They are... 
of incredible religious significance and importance all of a sudden. They are source. They are source. That's right. Right? All of these things come out of this weird thing that happens in your brain. Like, it's wild how we can interpret this stuff. And I wanted to point out the feelings and the things that happen because lacking any of this understanding, people are going to explain all of this in very different ways, wildly different ways, very imaginative ways. But this is actually the science of what's going on. And I, again, I, this is why I find it fascinating. Next, we have philosophical interest. That's the, yeah, what's this one about? Described as nascent metaphysical or moral speculations, cosmological theories. I wonder if Hubbard had I any... Wonder, yeah, <laughs> I wonder if Hubbard theory. had any theories about, you know... Moral speculations. And cosmology. I wonder, did and he? Metaphysical? Oh, I don't know. I, I, this, is a, this is a tough one to nail down on Hubbard. I, I don't know. I mean, it wouldn't, ha, it wouldn't be all the books he wrote between 1950 and 55 describing uh, how all the philosophical systems, he finally figured them all out and put... Put them all together, and here we have Scientology, That's, right? Yeah, a feeling of knowing, feeling of being chosen. Now, I, I didn't mention it earlier, but the sense of, of, of being chosen, the sense of uh, um, many times it's to cult leaders or when it's ideas of reference, it is a personal thing. But I think that to cult members, it can be a collective thing. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. not that I was chosen, it's that we. this group was chosen. Correct. Yeah. That's right. In fact, that's a key key component of uh, generating the us versus them. Yeah. Um, it, it, you must have a sense of specialness to this mm -hmm. group. Now, every group has identifying characteristics that identified as different from other groups, and people will take that and use that to feel special about themselves, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when you blow it up to it's us versus them, and we're not talking about sports right now. We're talking about, you know, our religion is better than your religion. Our beliefs are better than your beliefs. Our beliefs, in fact, are the one and only true beliefs. And no other beliefs can be true or even contain any hint of truth to them. Now you're way past the line of acceptability and tolerance, and you're over into uh, reasons to start hurting other people and even killing them. And that's where this goes. So we're again we're talking about extreme versions of this. Okay, three to go. So. <laughs> no, this is fascinating. I, 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> what else we got? So next one is a, is a, is a, is a tricky one. It's titled "Dependence, Comma Passivity," mm. and it is described as cosmic helplessness at the hands of fate. Quote and protestations of helplessness. Interesting. Interesting. One thing comes to mind right away, but can you talk a little bit more about so, this? Uh, well, I, I think that this is an aspect of of when he would have his depressive. No, past. for sure. I for think sure. That they they yeah. came with this professed helplessness. I'm, you know. Yes, there's nothing I can do. It's all yeah. useless. It doesn't matter anyway. I mean, we. how many of us have not felt that, right? Now imagine taking that, you know, okay. Standard, regular, average, normal human being. I'm not trying to like put anybody down or try to say your your depression or your upset doesn't matter. That's not my point. 
But where I'm going with this is that if if that's two or three foot down in the pool, Hubbard was down about ten feet, right? Like like we're talking deep, deep feelings of self resentment, of of failure, of I have I have I have ruined everything kind of stuff. And we do know Hubbard had that. Yeah. We do know that that and, occurred. And it's it's neurological. I think yeah. that in general, most people when they have those things, those are psychological. Correct. There we go. In Hubbard. Right. When it's neurological, when it's a fucking scar in the brain, sorry. No, no, it's fine. That's right. When it's scar in the brain, it's, it's, it's more real. It's intense. It's an intense one. It's yeah. something you can't, ha, can't argue with. Um, the other thing that is interesting here that is not, I don't know that I've ever heard this reference, so I'll bring it up as a point on this, that Hubbard was quoted. Um, there was an article he wrote, which was probably about the most autobiographical thing he wrote, right? Uh, my defense, my only defense for having lived, I think he called it. And um, and it was narrated by Miscavige in some video the church produced, which is how I saw it. And this line always stuck with me. Um, and it's not entirely untrue either, but it indicates, well, I'll get to it. It's this line from this work, but it it, it, it this made me think of it. Hubbard talked about how he had put together, he was presenting himself as the savior figure, and he put together Dianetics, and he, and he said while he was writing it, a thought occurred to him, that man always destroys those who come to help man. That man all and, and and the imagery here was you know crucifixes and hangmen's nooses and you know we're gonna we're gonna pillory and destroy those who come to help us and he said and that gave me pause he said the only the only time I ever stopped you know in in my in my forward trap it's lying through his teeth but you know the only time I stopped and, and what gave me pause was you know man always destroys his saviors right a man always destroys the people that are trying to help him and you know and I thought well. Okay, but I got to do it anyway. You know, something like that. Like he, you know, he paints himself out to be the hero all the time. But that thought, that kind of like, oh well, ooh, ooh, you know. But I'm chosen for this. I must do this. This is this is my calling, kind yeah. of thing, right? So that's what came to mind for yeah. me. Yeah. And the final one. Oh no. Um, oh no. Last yeah. two here. Yeah. Last two. Humorlessness and sobriety. Yeah. And they're described as overgeneralized, ponderous concern, humor lacking, or idiosyncratic. Interesting. So Interesting. This is not, uh, so the humorlessness doesn't mean lack of laughing. Uh huh. Laughing. Tickle, <laughs> tickling can have from laughing. Uh, you got nervous laughter, babies laugh. Uh huh. So it doesn't always mean that something is being considered funny when somebody is laughing. Yeah. Right. There's lots and lots of reasons. No, there's no humor. Right. Okay. It doesn't need to be humor for laughing. But humorlessness, sobriety, and um, so Hubbard sort of has humor, but it's bad humor. Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he had a pretty bad sense of humor. I'll say that. Um, Even in his writing, I found his his jokes to fall flat. but there's another aspect to this as well, which is an enforced humorlessness, which I will comment yeah. on in terms of how it manifests in the cult. Because Hubbard 
presented himself as even as a as a humorful and even gregarious person from time to time, life of the party, that kind of thing. Always there with the witty jokes, always there with the funny stories. And he and he and it, to to hear people talk about him pre Scientology and even sometimes during Scientology, um, that was part of his thing. Is 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 being the larger than life center of the party kind of guy. So clearly, he did have the ability to entertain people with his stories and stuff, and he could and he could navigate that. But when it came to Scientology, Hubbard had no sense of humor whatsoever. And by that, I mean he even wrote into the policies of Scientology an issue called "Jokers and Degraders." It's the name of the issue, and in that issue, he made it crystal clear that. Anyone laughing at or making jokes at the expense of him or Scientology was a psychotic person because that's where joking and degrading come from. Humor, he says in this issue, is fine. There's nothing wrong with laughing. But when it's at the expense of saving the world, then... It's not okay. It's psychotic. It's a psychotic effort to destroy is what he literally wrote. So uh, he was not at all interested in um, there being any Scientology comedians <laughs> on the subject of Scientology. Mm-hmm. You would never, ever, ever in any point in Scientology be able to do a stand-up routine about Scientology. But sometimes you might ask someone... To fish swim for three hours straight. <laughs> yes, you might. <laughs> and you become loopy and you start laughing. Yes. But that is, it's, it's the very humor. different thing. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, yeah, no yeah. jokes at Scientology's expense yeah. was, I'm just pointing out that was Not actual expense, policy. But just, yeah, just period. Yeah. Yeah. Now, joke about other things, tell jokes about psych, psychiatrists uh-huh. all day long. Right? How many psychiatrists did it take to screw in a light bulb? Right? Things like that. Common jokes all throughout mm-hmm. Scientology. Never joke about Scientology. Yeah. I saw one time um, a months long investigation carried out by senior Sea Org members because there's a word in Scientology called a cognition. In Scientology, that word has a specialized meaning of not just thinking about something or a thought. It's a realization. It's a new realization mm-hmm. about law. It, it's a euphoric moment. Oh, I had a cognition. Yeah. It's what you realize as a result of you, your of your euphoria. Yeah, it's, a, it's a feeling of understanding. Oh, incredible feeling. I mean, you get perspective like it's like, wow, mm-hmm. I really got a new lease you on life kind of thing. That. Oh, you're having I had many cognitions. The end result, in fact, of every single auditing session that is ever delivered in Scientology, whether it's on the meter or not, whether it's Dianetics or Scientology auditing styles, doesn't matter. The end result of every one of them has to include a cognition. You're not done until you have it. Mm -hmm. So you could be sitting there for hours. But point is, some joker came up with a bognition. A bognition. This is when you have a negative epiphany, when you realize something negative. Ah, oh, I actually did suck about that. You just had a bognition, right? Oh, I'm actually in a cult. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, hey, whoa, wait a minute. I'm in a cult. Um, just the invention of that word, bognition, was considered joking and degrading. Mm-hmm. And they spent months using an e-meter investigating interviewing tons of people, every single person they could find who had ever said that word, where'd you hear it from? 
Where'd you get that from? Tracing it back to find who's the motherfucker saying this word. And I'm telling you, they spent months on this and they finally found the guy. And, and, and the guy who got busted for this was was in trouble for months afterwards. He had to do scrubbing toilets. He had to, you know, prostrate himself uh, because he had, and it was found out, he wasn't even the guy who invented the word. He's just the one who spread it to the most people, uh-huh. right? He told most people because he thought it was hilarious because it is, yeah. but not in Scientology. It's not, <laughs> that's the extent to which they will go with this. And I just wanted to highlight that point that you think, oh, people just think it's rude or it's not okay. No, 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 no. You're in real trouble for trying to bring humor to this topic, you know? All right. The final one. And a good one, an important yes, one. Yes, very. Paranoia. Oh, Hubbard had nothing to do with that. Described as suspicious, overinterpretive of motives and events. Diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. Um, yeah. Yeah, he was, and and that's that's uh, that's a problem. <laughs> it, well, it was, and it was very interesting how it developed over time. Even from the outside, we see so clearly how Hubbard's paranoia became more and more prominent from, I, I, I date it to around 1963-4 because he had a series of what we'll say are unfortunate PR events occur. <laughs> he got a bad rap in Better Homes and Gardens or something. He got, <laughs> he got a few bad interviews, which he thought he was going to get hero pieces. He thought he was going to get like, you know, he's awesome. And they just completely trashed him, right? And he had given, he'd opened his home and given these interviews and gone on for days. And he thought this was finally, he was going to finally arrive. No, it was just a hit piece. And he was furious. And I don't know that he ever changed after that. But after that is when the private investigators, the fair gaming, the suppressive person policy, um, you know, going down to Rhodesia because he had to get the hell out of England and then that failed and all the government forces were working against him. And all of that conspiracy theory of the government is against us, the world is against us, the world has to, you know, be saved. But for now, we have to uh, protect ourselves from all these dark forces who are trying to take us out. All of that develops at that time. Mm-hmm. And it just became progressively worse over the next decade. And we saw Operation Snow White, the whole Snow White program, right? Uh, And Hubbard's paranoia was the catalyst for the single largest covert spy operation ever carried out against the United States government that anybody is aware of. That was Operation Snow White. This was not, this did not result in him having a few harsh words with some people. This destroyed lives. People went to jail because of Hubbard's paranoia. That's how crazy it was. And so, that's also one of the things that you also see in cult members. Yes, yeah. that's right. That's right, because it develops because of the, of the um, narrative that they're constantly being fed. Mm-hmm. Right? The world's against us. The world's yep. against us. Don't you know the world's against us? You get enough of that, that whole us versus them thing. So, um, yeah, that's, that's the so end those of are the, the list. personality this there we go. Symptoms, but if you think those were enough to convince you <laughs> that Hubbard might have had some of this, yes. In addition, we got 
oh. the, the, the more physiological stuff. Yes. And, and, and let's, I mean, this is a big, long paragraph here. There's a lot of stuff here. Yeah. Let's just kind of skim through this, because if I try to read this all out to y'all, I think you're going to want to uh, kill me. <laughs> so <laughs> what we have here is we're talking here about since seizures are composed of ordinary mental states, they can take almost any form. So here we're talking about what happens to a person or some of the things that can occur when these epileptic seizures are happening from the temporal lobe, right? As opposed to, say, a grand mall like we talked about earlier. Um, so you could have almost anything happen, okay? Yeah, but you here can, are... You can also have grand mall seizures if the... Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah. No, no, but, sorry, yeah, you're right. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. But there are many, many people with temporal lobe epilepsy that never have a, a grand mall seizure. So. Right. Okay, fair enough. Um, so we have six basic categories here. Uh, which are identified as hallucinatory. Okay, we're going to walk through the six categories of what can happen when this is going down. Hallucinatory. Uh, you can have emotional symptoms. You can have body functions outside conscious control, like autonomic symptomology, right, or things happen. Uh, motor control problems, sensory, and experiential. Those and are your just, right? I'll just uh, give the reference here. Yeah. This is uh, from the book Seized. By Eve Laplante, the year 2000, uh, page uh, 99 and 100. There we go. Good. So now Mr. Spires, which Eve Laplante is quoting, and I think he is a neurologist as well, um, they, they list the, the different seizures. So the hallucinatory seizure symptoms mm. can consist of tastes, smells, sounds, voices, and visions of colors, lights, or menacing figures. Mm -hmm. So we and and particularly people with uh, both temporal lobe epilepsy, but also just hyperactive temporal lobe, can hallucinate smells. Now Hubbard had a thing about smells. Yes, he did. <laughs> yes, he did. Yes. And in fact, it had a consequence that you might not necessarily imagine as as a consequence of this. Um, Hubbard was a Hubbard was not a germaphobe. Hubbard worked in incredibly dirty environments. But Hubbard developed this thing in the 60s, maybe it was earlier, but certainly in the Sea Org, where he needed to have his clothes washed and his rooms cleaned with very specific non-scent cleaners, non-scented cleaners, to the point that he was having his shirts rinsed in the freshest water they could find nine separate times to remove any possibility of any smells that were going to be in these clothes as a result of the cleaning agents. And he wrote issues about this. And I heard anecdotes from people who were on the ship with him who did his laundry even when I was in the Sea Org, and they would tell me about this, that he could take a shirt that had been washed and rinsed nine times, and he could, he could from like about three feet away, he could walk into the room, look at the shirt and go, there's clean, you know, there's soap in that thing, or there's scented products in that thing. And he just really went on a tear about scented products. He didn't want anything with smell. And this I'm positive this is the reason why. Because because the people who described this to me were like, 
there was no smell. <laughs> like we, and, and it wasn't that they were contradicting Hubbard. They were like, he was so OT, he could pick up these perceptions of things that we could not. And yes. that's how they dealt with his issues because they didn't, they could never acknowledge Hubbard was wrong. So it had to be. And I think there's you know. also an episode where the, the, he, he figures out that the, the ink yeah. is scented. Or, yes. Or some, yes. <laughs> he, some... he claims supernatural levels of sense perception. Which was just hallucinating smells. Exactly. <laughs> and here we go. Right? Okay. Sounds as well. Uh, I mean, there are instances, mm-hmm. right? And of course, Hubbard would, you know, regale his students or his fellow Sea Org members with stories all night long about things up in the stars, you know? So who's to say he wasn't seeing things as well? So the next category of, of uh, seizure symptoms, hallucinatory, are emotional, and uh, um, they span the spectrum of human emotional states, including mm-hmm. attacks of panic or anger, explosions of tears or laughter, and orgasm. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Yeah. There's, a, there's a full range of stuff that can happen with a person when they're experiencing one of these um, seizures, and we know about Hubbard's fits of anger and, you know, stomping around and his fits of crying and upsets with people. And we, you know, we've categorized this or put this under the umbrella of the, of the bipolar disorder or things like that. But this is also another possible explanation of what was going on with the guy is he's having a seizure and the emotions are all over the place because he ain't in control of it. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting point. Next, we have uh, physical states such as irregular heartbeats, shortness of breath, dizziness, flushing, and vomiting. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I assume. Hard to say yeah. on that one, right? Hubbard, Hubbard's health was up and down and all over the place. But he had many, many complaints pre-Scientology about very, um, he was very wrapped up in all of the um problems and issues that he had, right? He was begging the VA, right, for for yeah. for a pension and uh or increased medical pension for all these medical problems that he had. But when he would go to the doctor, yeah, it's not really that big of a deal, man. You got a, you know, a duodenal ulcer, you got a little pink eye. But he's like, it's the end of the world. Don't you understand? You know? Well it might well be that he was faking it, but it might well be that in his mind all of that was actually real. And wouldn't that make this even an even crazier story than you think it is? So next we have motor seizure symptoms, mm. such as lip smacking, undressing in public, <laughs> staring, wow. twitching, and transient paralysis, uh, as well as Jacksonian seizures, which consist of tremors spreading up or down one side of the body. Right, Right. Hard yeah. to say on this one in terms of Hubbard, but... Luckily, he didn't undress in public. But, yeah, that's uh, right. That we know of. The lip smacking I did here. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, you could... Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Um, so a lot, a lot of different body stuff can happen as a result of this. Kind of interesting. Um, then we have sensory seizure symptoms include pain, the temporary inability to feel pain. And uh, what's called paresthesias, which are bizarre feeling of uh, pins and needles or bugs crawling under the screen, the mm-hmm. skin, mm-hmm. Um, and the sensation that the limb has been lost. 
Mm. Or the Alice in Wonderland symptoms, which object seems to contract or expand, or the person seems to be falling down a hole, or even memories of sensations such as an arm being submerged in icy water. Oh, wow. But also feeling that you're getting bigger and smaller, not just mm-hmm. objects. Um, See, this is yeah. really interesting because the way I, where my mind goes with this when we're reading this one is I start thinking to myself, like I was saying earlier with this other point on the aura creation and the, and the weird feelings and sensations that one can just suddenly start experiencing out of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, to the, to the person's experience, they're going along in their life and then suddenly they feel like Alice in Wonderland. Suddenly things yeah. are getting bigger and smaller. Suddenly they feel like there's bugs crawling under their skin. Like all yeah. these weird things start happening out of nowhere. And if you're in 1950, 1960, mm-hmm. I mean, one, this could kind of drive you crazy. And two, you could easily resort to drugs or alcohol or some other thing to to cope with or try to deal with this. And Hubbard did both frequently. Yeah. And it, and and so again, this is pure conjecture, um, but all of these things would lend themselves to in 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 if they were occurring um, in a seizure, right, where it was just with no context. On top of all the other stuff we're talking about, none of these exist in isolation. It could be a bunch of different stuff all at once, right? With these kind of things happening, past life memories easily come to mind. I mean, if you start feeling like your arm is, um, you have a memory of a sensation of your arm being submerged in icy water and it hasn't been that you can remember in your life, if you're near L. Ron Hubbard, where are you going to put those memories? In a past life. Easy. And And it's going to be so real to the person. They will argue you to the ground on the reality of what has happened to them. They are absolutely sure it happened. Certain. They are. And you can't argue with that. You can't reason somebody out of that. You can try. But But (laughs) but, good luck. And they would make them feel even more convinced. That's right. They're going to double down, right? So, so this is, so I, you know, I want to just kind of contextualize all of these physiological things we're talking about fit into what I just said. It's, it's coming out of nowhere. And if it happened to you, maybe now you might say, oh, TLE, maybe (laughs) up until you listen to this, would you have honestly assigned any of those things to some brain seizure? Probably not. You got lots of other ways to explain it. And for people who have um, supernatural beliefs or ideas, well, man's history tells us what people do with that. (laughs) They immediately assign all this weird stuff to some external source causing it because it can't be from within, you know? Yep. Uh, And the final category, experiential symptoms, and that includes dreamy states, flashbacks, trances, automatisms, Deja and jamais vu. So deja vu is when you feel inappropriate familiarity, and jamais vu is when you feel inappropriate unfamiliarity. Right. Yes. In other words, if if you were sitting here right now, you and I have known each other for yeah. years, and I suddenly just had this feeling, just knowing, yeah. I, I just know, wait a minute, I don't know you, <laughs> yeah. but I do, or but I, I don't. I don't, or, or, I, I can't. Or you feel like you've never been to this room, even though you've oh, been in this room before. Right. <laughs> What is this space? I don't understand. Like, it's weird, isn't it? You know? Um, The sense that time is standing still or rushing by. The illusions of of a presence. 
a doppelganger or a double. In other words, somebody else who looks and sounds just like you, and you're sure this thing exists in your vicinity. You can see him, yeah. you can hear him, whatever, right? No, no, no. I don't think you can see him. Oh, it's here. just a, a sense that it exists? Exist. And, and we'll, okay. we'll, we'll get to it because okay. we'll just finish this. The feeling of being possessed with body thetans? Ah, see, even all the way back in 1951, Hubbard was writing about entities <clears throat> and that they existed in the body. In the stomach, uh, this was a comparable to uh, what many people think of as chakras. Um, the, the you know the the various points in the body where there are separate beings who who are living in your body, or it's a symbiotic kind of thing. Or there's different interpretations of this concept. But I just wanted to point out to everybody that this was something that started early in Scientology's track. It wasn't just in the 60s with the OT3 Xenu stuff that that came into Scientology. It was actually there almost from the beginning. And uh, we have uh, uh, finally, uh, the so we have the feeling of being possessed and mind-body dissociation or depersonalization in which the mind seems to separate from the body. There it is, right? Exteriorization. Yes. And, um, and we've talked actually on my shows here recently about the entire concept of disassociation and how Scientology auditing can induce that feeling. And, you know, that yeah. whole conversation we had, I brought over here it's, it's uh, on that. Dissociation. Dissociation. Not dissociation. Dissociation. Yes. Sorry, I'm putting the A in there. <laughs> yeah. It's my uh, reading. I think it's a common thing. Yeah. Now, Hubbard... It's a very strange thing to think that you have a doppelganger, mm -hmm. but I think that it relates to if you, when, when, so there's a lot of inappropriate sense feelings of knowing that come with awe and with temporal of epilepsy that you feel familiarity, you feel certainty, you feel correctness, you feel, but also the negatives. Now, if you walk around and you hallucinate or you feel that other people are finding you familiar mm. so you're you, you're projecting this you, you your inappropriate familiarity you seeing it in other people's faces and you're like why am i in a place that nobody knows me and they all think that they're familiar it must be a doppelganger mm. that they all know that looks just like me and in the case of hubbard it's called perdido right that's right <laughs> a book that hubbard wrote called i perdido about a doppelganger, a do the double, but in the book it was real, uh -huh. uh, right? It's a whole fantasy story. Yeah. But Hubbard actually had an experience, which he lectured about, um, which he said was the basis of this book. And when it was released, we all got to listen to that lecture because, you know, it's all true. <laughs> and Hubbard talked about how down in Cuba there was somebody who people swore was— Or Costa Rica. Costa Rica or yeah. Cuba. I can't remember actually which one because um, Hubbard spent serious time in Cuba, and I don't know if he went to Costa Rica or not. I can't remember. But somewhere Hubbard had been— um, he talked about how people commented on this doppelganger, and he had this whole, you know, of course, it's Hubbard, right? So he had this very flourishy, very, you know, uh, built-up story of this, but it was certainly a weird-ass coincidence that this is on the list of symptoms, and, you know, there you can go and pluck it right there. There's Hubbard's doppelganger story. I don't have a doppelganger story. <laughs> you don't have a doppelganger story, but Hubbard did. Mm -hmm. I find that fascinating. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. 
In addition to the fact, also, by the way, that sense of knowing people and knowing things can also feed one's megalomania, uh, if you think about that for a minute, right, how that might work. And also the sense that we've all been together before. Yeah. Now, I can't stress that one enough because that's actually core to Hubbard's myth of the Sea Org. One of the ways that Hubbard would unite or or get the people who were original Sea Org members back on the boats in the 60s together and keep them together was convincing them that the Sea Org was a group of people who were back together again. The motto of the Sea Org created in 1968 is we come back. This entire motto is based on this misperception, mm-hmm. this belief. Yeah. And the, the, the sensation of abnormal familiarity. That person that I just met a few days ago. Right. I feel like I know him for many years. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It, isn't it interesting? This is the part that blows me away, okay? And I, and I know everybody's not going to share this with me, but I just, I'm just, you know, what I keep saying during the show, how fascinated I am with this, because... We naturally assign causation, intention to some of Hubbard's activities and behavior and what he did of a nefarious nature. And we should. He was a nefarious guy. But maybe some of the layers of that nefariousness actually sprang from pure delusion, hallucination a brain condition that was undiagnosed and out of control, and he didn't ever during his entire life even once suspect a thing like that. Because why would he? He, It was never in his range of experience or realm of understanding to think that way. But now we can, (laughs) you know? And I think that, you know, uh, people that are listening to this, I assume some of them might have been either ex-Scientologists and maybe even current Scientologists. And as such, they might have anecdotes that are like, oh, they don't know about Hubbard saying this or that. Or they might keep this in mind while they're reading Hubbard to look for things that are related to temporal lobe epilepsy. And so it might be something that, you know, we, we gave a collection of anecdotes that seem to be very compatible with Hubbard's suffering from temporal lobe epilepsy, but there might be a lot more. (laughs) Yes, very much so. In fact, I'd be amazed if there weren't, given how many people knew him over how many years and how prominent of a part of his life this must have been. I'm convinced, personally, I don't don't consider this conjectural, but I say that because it is. I mean, let's understand, right? Of course it is. But I believe it. I absolutely believe that this makes total sense to me as a set of, uh, as a condition with a set of symptoms that are just perfect for this kind of situation. And the reason I think it's important to talk about, and maybe I should have led with this, to be honest, now that I think about it, um, is if this does help explain certain cult leader phenomena, L. Ron Hubbard is dead. We're not, we're just, we're just kind of guessing at him. But there are people who are around right now who are abusing people, who are manipulating people, who are deceiving people. And this could be why. 
And if we know that's a possibility, we can now find out if that's a truth. We couldn't do that in 1966 or 76 or all the way up to 86 when Hubbard died. Maybe we could have then, but he wasn't going to avail himself of that. (laughs) But now in 2023, 2024, we sure as hell can. And, you know, it's not like you're going to necessarily... you know, uh, what was it? Black bag your cult leader and drag him down to the, you know, down down to an MRI or something. Or, but or put, put, you know, put brain in his, yeah, I mean, coffee. <laughs> odds are people aren't going to do that. But wouldn't it be interesting if we if we put Keith Rainier into? No, so Keith, you know, I think that he um, he is. So you could you could say them epileptic by proxy. That yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he, he copies yeah. the actual epileptic. Yeah, exactly. I, he studied Hubbard a lot. Yes, he did. He took a lot. He copied a lot. But yeah. He himself seems to be just a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> just your garden variety psychopath. But, but there are people who yeah. this might actually fit, and it would do. And and if caught early enough, of course, it could head off later. You know, abuses. Yeah. Right, and it could also, and and, and I'm also just if you realize, if if you know to see it, you might join a group and recognize that, and the leader know to get away. So Correct. Not just you know with helping the leader, helping the group. It just might be that's a that's a, a sign to be suspicious of the group. That is very true. That is very true. Because all of this behavior, obviously, is um, or, or or as we're contextualizing it, uh, can be pretty destructive. Um, you know, I'll just say that because there is mechanisms of emotional contagion and mirror neurons, someone who feels this intensely like Hubbard and has an extreme strong feeling of understanding of, uh, uh, you know, those kind of things, they might stare into your eyes and you, and you get, through emotional contagion, through mirror neurons, you feel a little bit of what they feel. Yeah. So there are many people who say, when the guru stared into my eyes, I felt that he understood my soul. Right. Now, when Hubbard stares at the tomato, he also understands the soul of the tomato. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you look at some of those videos of uh, of a Marshall Applewhite and you mm. see that look. And, yeah. and if you were there in the room... I'm telling you, it's a different experience. Y'all know, you've seen celebrities, you've had those moments of, and and you know it's different. This, this is, this is that on steroids, right? So the, the, um, it could be that people get a glimpse of what it feels like to have this profound, unusual sense of understanding when the guru stared into their, their, their eyes. And that could be so awe-inducing and so unusual that it people can say, and for the next 10 years, I followed that guru because when he stared into my eyes, I felt understood like I've never been understood it's before. True. But yeah, it's true. people feel that. But yeah. as, as I said, I'm, and, and I was referring to the famous picture of Hubbard staring intently to, at the tomato. Right. Yeah. Well, we have had, I, the, I mean, I I am nodding so vigorously here because I have seen stories from other cults. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a Russian Jesus for a while, right, who had that exact quote from people who were following Mm -hmm. him. He looked at me and dot, 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 right? Yeah, like he looked through, he looked deep into me. He looked through me. He, you know, that whole phenomenon, that's not just some like, well, it's like you said, there's physiological reasons for that. 
You don't have to go spiritual to explain all this stuff. And I hope this whole show kind of indicated how many things we jump to spirituality and supernatural explanations for things that are legit brain malfunctions. Like it's amazing, you know, and and it doesn't disprove spirituality. It points out that we don't necessarily need to go there to explain what's going on sometimes. And that's a very important point to me to to, to get across to people. So now I've gotten it across. Okay. Um, So let's go ahead and start wrapping up because we've covered a lot of stuff here, just like we did when we first went over this. Um, This is really, really, really interesting stuff. I happen to think that carried off to its full extent, if this is true and if this is um, diagnosable and if this is manageable, treatable in some fashion, not curable, you can't cure scars on the brain no, you can, but you can manage surgery. it quite well yeah. right you can you can do things you can yeah so many times the the there is brain surgery where the the scar is very you know dirty it's got a bunch of little things and they make a very smooth cut around it take the scar out but then everything around it is smooth and it is less likely that it would cro- cause this chronic mm. so there are there is reason in cures i mean Kind of. Can there is surgery that people uh, 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 have and benefit greatly from, but there's also drugs. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I just imagine a possibility where, for some time now, certainly over this last year, I've been spending uh, some time looking into, um, you know, psychopathy and epiphanal moments. You know, we've talked about some of those and then the change, the neurological change that can come from those moments. Um, but if there's damage and you recognize that damage and that damage is causing real world attitude shifts, emotion shifts, belief shifts in a person, and they are becoming a cult leader type person because of that, that euphoria, that sense of mission and purpose and drive, can any of us could, could, could become that. And it, and it, and traumatic head injury could cause this. Any person is susceptible to this. This is not some weirdo moralistic failing on somebody's part. Or encephalitis. A tick can bite you and you get a brain disease that puts a hole in your brain. Wow. Or or, or a blood clot. Exactly. Drinking too much. And we know Hubbard drank like a fucking, you know. So my point is that wouldn't it be amazing if you had somebody who was acting like the narcissistic, psychopathic cult leader and you find out this is going on and you deal with it. And that's not happening to that person anymore. And they're not that person anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, they're still going to be the same person. Let's not get too crazy here, right? But they don't have the urges or the desire or the need to uh, victimize people around them in the name of saving them, right? Extreme emotionality or the paranoia. Yeah. Exactly. All of that tempered down, we bring the dial down. Now, this isn't a universal thing by any stretch, but it appears common enough in the symptomology that it's worth looking into. It's worth exploring further. And it's, you know, this whole world of cults and ex-cults and dealing with cults is not just about, you know, salacious stories of abuse that we can titter at. It's about people's lives being negatively changed for the worse for for the rest of their lives. And I want to do something to prevent that from happening. And that's why this excites me. So, um, because I'm always looking for directions of how do we ease this problem? 
Well, as a society, we have to understand it first. And we got to get past the moral foundations of this and the moral arguments of it. Yeah, they're all valid. But we tend to crucify people as a result of those judgments. Oh, you victimized all these people. You deserve death. <laughs> okay, well, yeah. you know, maybe we could maybe we could actually deal <laughs> with this person and dial them down. And maybe that group isn't anymore. And now we've actually done something amazing. That's the kind of future I'd like to see. And this is what I think opens that opens the door to those kind of possibilities. So thank you for all of this. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really, really enlightening. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and I really look forward to your book. Now, just, to, just so people can reach out to you, how do they reach you if they have questions or want to know more? So you can email me at uh, my first name and last name at Gmail. So Yuval Laor, Y-U-V-A-L-L-A-O-R. A Gmail and uh, great. I'll put yeah. that in the. I'll put that down there. No website. Yeah. No, no. Uh, okay, good. So when the when the book comes out, of course, we yes. will definitely talk about that. <laughs> we will definitely talk about yes. that when you get it published. Uh, but until then, I hope that this uh, you find this very very interesting, informative, and educational. Thank you for watching, and I will see you guys next week. Bye bye. Thank you.